the history of our child welfare system. It is a system that from the beginning was designed to oppress, control, and even destroy uh, disenfranchised, politically subordinated communities. You are listening to PEN America's Works of Justice podcast. I am Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 50 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on mass incarceration, advocacy, and justice in the United States. In this episode, postgraduate fellow Sofia Ramirez speaks with Dorothy Roberts, an acclaimed law professor and social justice advocate. Her new book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World, calls for the abolishment of the child welfare system and a radical reimagining of a new way to keep children safe. Great. Well, hi. Thank you so much for being here with me, Dr. Roberts, and and for writing such a you know penetrating insight into the the welfare system. And and yeah, I, I think it's so great that you know you and all the people and organizations you talk about in the book, the the system impacted mothers and Rise Magazine, how you guys are doing the work to expose this system to prioritize the the radical change that you talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I'm really gratified that I could work with system impacted mothers and a youth and people like the staff at RISE who have been dedicated to abolishing the system for a long time and that it's finally getting more attention, the attention it deserves, because yeah. it's such a damaging system and people misunderstand what its actual purpose and operation are. And so it's it's an exciting time to educate people about it and to gather a movement to radically change the way that we in our society treat families and think about what safety for children even means. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and like you say, um, it's important that attention is happening now because uh, in America, there is a movement surrounding, you know, police brutality and, and that kind of balance against black people and minorities, but there's very little attention to, to this other kind of oppression. Um, And in your book, you talk about how part of that's because of just the way that this system is portrayed, you know, like child protection and, and foster care, right. It's this uh, you call it this facade of benevolence that it can hide behind. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, we could also even add the basic term child welfare system. Right. Uh, so there's this idea that has been propagated by the government and child welfare agencies you know, for more than a century that this is a system designed to rescue children from abusive parents and that that's the best way to keep children safe. And that is a facade of benevolence and care that completely 
misrepresents the purpose and design of this system. It doesn't provide families with support. It does just the opposite. It doesn't provide children with care. It does just the opposite. So it's not even designed to provide for the welfare of children. I say it's just the opposite because it's a system that terrorizes families, inflicts trauma on them, both the parents and family caregivers and the children, and doesn't provide the concrete resources that families need, and instead blames the families for inflicting the harms on children that are actually caused by structural racism and poverty, racial capitalism. Uh, And so if anything, it diverts our attention from the true harms to children and then inflicts on them greater harms. So on top of the struggles that families are going through, this system now comes in as an accusatorial force that invades their homes, inspects them, usually without any kind of search warrant or judicial view, and takes over their lives with these onerous regulations that they have to meet that usually have nothing to do with meeting the family's needs. And then it takes away children from their loved ones, you know, hundreds of thousands of children every year and puts them into a so-called foster care system that also traumatizes them. And for many Black children and Indigenous children who are the most likely of any children to be put into this system, it is a way of driving them toward houselessness and poverty, lack of uh, high-quality education, and and importantly, into juvenile detention and the criminal punishment system. And so it it operates as a way of oppressing the most marginalized communities in this nation uh, in the guise of protecting children. It's it's not even honest about it. (laughs) At least with prisons and police, we know, uh, of course, they've got their propaganda as well, that they're needed to keep people safe. But at least you know that it's a punishment system. With the child welfare system, there's this propaganda that it's benevolent and caring when it actually serves a function that is exactly like prison and police. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you asked the question in your book, like if the child welfare system, if this family policing was truly benevolent and compassionate, then why does it mean something so completely different to you know, wealthy white families compared to indigenous communities and, and black communities? Um, like you talk about how wealthy white families, they, don't, they have the resources so they don't have to come in contact with mandated reporters, with all these other things. Um, but instead of providing those resources to these other families, Instead, the state um, punishes them and calls it neglect and tears them apart, hence the name. Exactly. So that's a point I try to make throughout the book, because there is this myth that what child welfare agencies do is go into low-income or impoverished 
communities and protect the children there from parental neglect. Right. Uh, and I, I try to dispel that myth in a couple ways. One is to point out that what's called child neglect is actually children's needs uh, because of poverty. It's not that parents are trying to uh, deprive their children mm-hmm. of the things they need, like adequate housing and nutrition and education and healthcare. Uh, it's that they are facing structural barriers to yeah. being able to provide these things for their children. And so when this is called child neglect and children are removed from the home because of it, it blames the parents for what is actually a fault of our society, our unequal and unjust society, an inhumane society. Uh, So that's one important point about how the system operates. And, And because of this, virtually all the children who are in the child welfare system, in foster care and families that are being supervised by so-called child protective services are low-income working-class families or impoverished families. Very few wealthy families are at all at risk of having anything to do with this system. So it's already structured in a way that targets uh, impoverished people. And that's one point. The other point is that on top of that, the child welfare system targets impoverished and working class families for things that wealthy parents do as well. (laughs) So uh, it, it just looks like it's child abuse and neglect to the system when it's done by a parent who doesn't have a high income. Uh, But the exact same behaviors that would be seen as by the system uh, as child neglect happen in wealthy homes as well. But as you said, wealthy people have the resources to address these problems through their private uh, counselors and therapists and healthcare providers that they can pay for. Uh, and, And also because this system operates according to myths and biases and prejudices and hatred of uh, poor people and and Black people, it sees their actions as more abusive and neglectful than when the exact same thing is going on in a wealthy home. Mandated reporters are more suspicious of Black parents. This is well-documented. Uh, than they are of white parents, especially middle-class or affluent white parents. They're more likely to report them, the the Black and impoverished parents, than they are wealthier parents. And so uh, just to give some examples, I talk about in the book a case of a mother who was at a family picnic and her toddler strayed away behind the cousin who was watching him. And, you know, the toddler followed her out of the park into the parking lot. And the mother immediately goes after the toddler. But before she can get there, a passerby calls the police on her saying that there's this child that's gone astray. 
Uh, the mother, ref- the, the, the caller refuses to give the child over to the mother and the police arrive and ticket the mother with a child endangerment charge uh, because of this incident. It goes, it ends up with the police coming to her home, hog tying her and brutally uh, carrying her out of the home, injuring her and terrorizing her whole family. But something like that, a toddler who momentarily runs away, strays away from the parent, that is not seen as child abuse or reckless endangerment when it happens to a wealthy white family. And it happens all the time. Any of us who who's a parent knows that little toddlers, you know, two-year-olds <laughs> disappear somehow. Like, run away. <laughs> and, you know, in the case, most cases, you would say, oh, let's get together and find this child. Or thank goodness someone saw the child and returned the child to the mother. You would never think, uh, unless it's the case, of a low-income Black mother, right, that this is something that would require police and child welfare involvement. Yeah. Yeah. And that just shows how deeply rooted this is in racism and in oppression. I would love if you could talk more about that and uh, the history of the system, because I know, at least in the book, that's a major part of explaining how this, the problem isn't that the system is broken, because the system isn't broken. It's been doing exactly what it was designed to do from its conception, which is to exploit and oppress these families. Absolutely. I I do have a whole chapter, uh, actually a whole part (laughs) of the book (laughs) about the origins of the child welfare system, because I think it is important to understand that this it was never a system designed to protect children, that it was designed from the very beginning as a system or a way of thinking about uh, child welfare that was designed to oppress the most politically disadvantaged families in America, and that it continues to operate that way. So yes, it's it's not, you know, when people find flaws in the child welfare system, you know, the main flaw that gets in the headlines is, oh, they missed a child who was being abused at home. Rarely do they talk about the flaw of children being unnecessarily taken from their families and put in a dangerous foster care system. But people will say, oh, that's a flaw we have to correct to improve the system, but you can't improve a system that's designed to oppress people. If you don't want it to oppress people, you have to abolish that system and replace it with a completely different approach. So I thought it was important to point out that this was never a benevolent child saving system. In fact, its roots as far as I'm concerned, are in enslaving African people Hmm. because we can see at the very origins of the United States, its settler colonial origins, it was separating Black families. So, you know, family separation didn't just start with the Trump administration at the border. The U.S. government 
uh, even before it was the U.S., the colonial states uh, were separating Black children from their parents, splitting up families at will because enslaved people had no family rights. And one of the most atrocious aspects of the slavery system was the rampant separation of family members from each other, including young children from their parents. Uh, and so family separation began at the, the origins of the U.S. state. Uh, and then also after emancipation, after the Civil War, there was a white backlash. Reconstruction was destroyed by white supremacy. And part of that backlash, that re reinforcement of a slavery-like system after the Civil War, you know, re-enslaving Black people. Uh, many people may know about the convict leasing system, the Black codes, but a part of it that hasn't gotten as much attention is the apprenticeship system where courts would declare that Black children were neglected, just like they're doing today, mm -hmm. and force them into apprenticeship with white white men, you know, but still they call, they were still called masters. And uh, they were frequently sent back as apprenticeship, apprentices to the very people who enslaved them prior to the Civil War. And so this was a form, tens of thousands of Black children were effectively re-enslaved uh, through this apprenticeship system, which is very much you know, has very similar features as the way in which neglect laws today allow Black children to be taken from their parents and put into foster care. And then another important part of the history of the U.S. child welfare system was the use of taking children as a weapon of war against Indigenous tribes yes. uh, in the 1800s, starting in the 1800s. It was a military tactic. Uh, the, the first so-called boarding schools created by the U.S. government were on military bases. You know, th these, this was a deliberate tactic to decimate Native tribes by taking their children away. And that turned into the, uh, the program, the U.S. government's program into the 1970s of deliberately removing Native children from their families and putting them into white controlled boarding schools for the express purpose of destroying their cultures. Yes. Uh, and so that's another aspect of the so-called child welfare system in America that's rooted in deliberate oppression, even extermination and de you know, decimation, extermination, uh, genocide, a form of genocide uh, by child taking of the U.S. government against indigenous people as, as a way of waging war against them. Uh, and then with respect to impoverished white children who were the other victims of this philosophy of taking children, uh, there's this myth that the child welfare system arose from benevolent charitable organizations that were trying to save 
children, either from neglectful parents who were mostly immigrant parents living in poverty in urban centers, uh, and uh, also to move away from what was the common way that impoverished children were treated, which was to put them in almshouses or poorhouses along with their parents, uh, where they were treated miserably and forced to work. And so foster care comes out of that history, uh, but it wasn't a history of charitable benevolence. It was a history of putting, taking children away from impoverished parents and putting them into the homes of strangers who could force them to work. And in fact, part of the history of the formal child welfare system, which mainly this formal child welfare system mainly took in impoverished white children. And uh, part of that was the so-called orphan trains that would load up trains uh, from northern cities like New York City with children who were called orphans. They, they weren't necessarily orphans. Many of them were just taken mm-hmm. from their parents because of poverty and uh, put on these trains, sent to the, to the West, uh, to the Midwest and farther West in order to work for farm families. Uh, and so none of this Uh, has anything to do with truly addressing the needs of children and their families. Uh, That's the history of our child welfare system. It is a system that from the beginning was designed to oppress, control, and even destroy uh, disenfranchised, politically subordinated communities. Yeah, completely. And that also goes into something that you were talking about earlier, that the child welfare system doesn't work in isolation. It's also intersecting with, you know, the justice system, the the prison system, and they they work together and they support each other. Yeah. So I think first it's important to understand that they have a similar logic. Uh, What prison abolitionists I have called a carceral logic to show that the prison industrial complex is this coordinated regime of various carceral institutions, including prisons and police, that operates according to a logic that says the way to address human needs and social conflicts, uh, including you know, human needs caused by racial capitalism, is to arrest and punish the, and, and, and surveil the people who are surviving these injustices. And so that logic applies to the child welfare system as well, the family policing system, because it does the same thing. It targets the most disenfranchised communities and blames parents and other family caregivers for harms to children that are actually caused by structural inequalities. And so uh, it, that, that logic is the same, but there's also this very concrete way in which they di- directly collaborate. So 
There are contracts that are being entered into now across the country between police departments and child welfare agencies Mm -hmm. to coordinate their searches of homes, uh, their accusations of parents, their supervision of families. Uh, So that's that's one way. Just an example of it is that caseworkers, when they receive an accusation that a parent is maltreating a child and go to investigate it, they often take police officers with them. And I I talk in in the, uh, right in the book, I've torn apart about a case where a parent was shot to death by a police officer in a routine kind of search because the police went along with the caseworker uh, the the parent father allowed the caseworker in, and then the police officer jumps in, taking advantage of the parent's willingness to allow in a caseworker. But you know, police are supposed to have a warrant yes. before they invade someone's home, and actually, so are caseworkers. The Fourth Amendment applies to government officials. It doesn't just apply to police officers. It also applies to caseworkers, but they rarely inform families that you have a fourth amendment right to get a warrant before I can come into your home. And so one way in which police and child, so-called child protection workers collaborate is for police to take advantage of the, you know, this false benevolence of the caseworkers Uh, which actually is not why many parents let them in. Many parents let them in because they know that if they don't cooperate with what the caseworker wants, the caseworker can file to a report in court that alleges that they are uncooperative and, and they're suspects for child abuse and neglect and that their children should be taken from them. Right. Or... The caseworker can come with a police officer and take the children away before they ever get before a court hearing. So this this is a weapon that's used to terrorize families that gives caseworkers this power that in some ways exceeds the power of police officers. And then when you put the two together, this is a huge amount of power for the government to invade people's homes, investigate, interrogate, strip search children looking for evidence of maltreatment, then spying on every aspect of their lives. Yes. I mean, you mentioned web and it really is a a tangled web of all these systems of, of regulation. And I would love to kind of wrap up on the, the the hopeful tone of, yes. of your book at the end you there's the theme of of community and you know of course of family and how if we want to pave the way to this abolitionist future we need to emphasize what we can do for each other in our community and how we can support each other and I would love if you could um, talk about like what are some ways that people what are some things people can do in their own communities and you know, were things that historically people have done in their communities that we wouldn't usually consider acts of abolition, but, you know, they really are. Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that question because I think it's important 
to understand that abolition means tearing down oppressive carceral systems, but it equally means building up other ways, humane and just and equitable and loving and caring ways of addressing human needs instead of caging people and taking children away from their loved ones. And so uh, the work of abolitionists now in this growing movement to abolish family policing does include ways of chipping away at the system. There are various legislative efforts that are underway to do that. But it equally means that we have to imagine new ways and also continuing old ways, traditional Mm -hmm. ways Mm -hmm. of taking care of each other within our communities. And it is important to remember that people have been doing this for centuries. You know, Black people were excluded from the formal child welfare system really until the civil rights movement fought for inclusion of Black people in welfare programs, you know, in state welfare programs. But what happened, of course, is that uh, both in welfare and, uh, you know, aid to needy families and also uh, the child welfare system, Black families began to be treated more harshly and the main service became taking children away and putting them in foster care. Mm -hmm. But until the welfare state gave any benefits at all, you know, inadequate puny benefits to Black families, child, children's needs were not addressed by the U.S. government. If, if Black children were likely to be sent to reformatories, you know, as juvenile delinquents, if they had needs known to the government, not being treated well at all. It, it, the system wasn't wasn't good for anybody, but right. uh, black children were excluded from whatever aid was offered. And so black communities, starting from the slavery system and, ha- and being held in bondage in the United States, and then uh, afterward having to fend for themselves, uh, have always figure out ways to care for children and their families. And I write about the Black club women's movement where Black women after emancipation formed clubs, sometimes in churches or other kinds of civic clubs, where the aim was to take care of mothers and their children. And they figured out they ran daycare centers you know, they ran healthcare centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ran training centers to train young mothers and jobs that they could get and provided for needy families that way within the community without relying on these brutal state systems. And so we know that it can happen. Uh, there are many, many examples of community-based ways of caring for children and their families that are far safer and that truly provide for children's well-being, uh, unlike the brutal child welfare system that we have. Uh, In addition, prison abolitionists 
have long been promoting the idea of mutual aid. Mm. Uh, This also uh, is a form of community-based care for each other. And as Dean Spade has written about, always accompanies abolitionist movements. There always has to be some form of care for people involved in the movement and their communities. And there have been networks of mutual aid springing up around the nation that have, again, been shown to be able to provide good care for community members. Uh, There's also some evidence, and a professor at NYU named Anna Ahrens wrote an article about this, that during the pandemic lockdown in New York City, during the pandemic, although it was predicted by many people that children would be abused and neglected in their homes if child welfare agents you know, were not inspecting them. Uh, the opposite happened. Children were at least as safe. And she points to two reasons why. One, because of mutual aid networks that provided concrete resources like groceries you know, and um, clothing and and uh, and even mental health care to families during the pandemic that took the place of uh, and did a better job mm-hmm. of providing than government institutions were doing. And then uh, there was also the checks that went out to uh, families to supplement their income from the Biden administration as part of the rescue plan. So this combination of community-based resources, mutual aid and caring with concrete material ways to support families without any intervention from child welfare agencies, with no family policing, uh, and also concrete income going directly to families without strings attached, you know, without saying, well, we have to take custody of your child before we'll give you any help. And then not even giving help, true help, you know, just recognizing that people need more income to be able to survive this capitalist marketplace that we have. Uh, And so that is another way of ensuring children's well-being without having families accused, surveilled, monitored, investigated, punished, torn apart by the state. Uh, And so abolition is both dismantling step-by-step, piece-by-piece, the terroristic system of family policing we have now that does not keep children safe and does not provide for their welfare. And piece by piece, it reimagining a radically different approach and putting it in place that truly supports families and keeps children safe. Wow. Yeah. I think that's um, a brilliant note to, to end on. Thank you so much for your expertise. And yeah, there's obviously there's a lot of work to do, but that just means that we have to work harder. Yes. Yes. And, and I hope my book 
helps people to understand how the system actually operates so that they'll be wanting to work harder at, to end yeah. it and reimagine far better ways of taking care of children and supporting families. This episode of Works of Justice was produced by postgraduate fellow Sofia Ramirez and mastered by Sarah Weck. Music used throughout the episode was created by B.L. Sherrill and Fury Young of Die Dream Co. Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. Members of PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Team include Mary Concepcion, Prison Writing Program Coordinator. Anjali M. Salem, Program Assistant. Nicole Shawan Jr., Deputy Director, Prison and Justice Writing. Kate Meissner, Director of Prison and Justice Writing. Robert Pollack, Prison Writing Program Manager. Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager, Editorial Projects. Sophia Ramirez, Postgraduate Fellow. Emma Stamen, Postgraduate Fellow. You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about PEN America's prison and justice writing, please visit pen.org slash works of justice. That's P-E-N dot org slash works of justice.